the opening, so don't change the opening. Welcome back to the Nomadic Gregors podcast. I'm Anna. I'm Cameron. And in our exploration of the world of international education and how to get into it, we are getting to the good part today. What happens when you are ready to say yes? I don't think that's a good part. I think choosing where you want to go is the best part. That's more fun to me. Well, but if you're going to say yes, it's because you got to a place where you want to go. Hopefully, that's the reason why you're going to say yes. You've got to a place where you've gotten an offer. It may not be a place you expected to go. There's a difference. But at the very least, the anxiety of having to search for a job is over. That part's nice. That's true. And on that same note, if you are finding this content helpful and you are ready to say yes to listening to the Nomadic Crickers podcast, you can rate and review and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you like the visuals, you can like and subscribe on YouTube. Let's get into the acceptance process on international school jobs. So I think we'll start with a couple things. We can start with... Um, where it's in our notes here. We'll talk with uh, time to accept receiving an offer, I think, you know, let's start with how much time you have to accept. Yeah, that's an important consideration because in international schools, especially if you're being offered a job in a fair, your time frame might be a little different than what you would have in a different setting when you're being offered a teaching job. Yeah, so fairs, I mean, it's been a while since we've been to an in-person fair. It's my understanding that it's still on average around 24 hours to decide. So if you're offered a contract at a fair, on general, they'll usually let you have the, the placement company, not placement company, the recruiting, it, agency. recruiting agency, usually stipulates that school should give you 24 hours to decide. And that's because they may be sending out other offers, um, and then if somebody turns it down, they want to come back to that other person within that same time frame. So it makes sense while you're there in person, um, but it can be really overwhelming when you're there and you only have a day to decide, especially if you have more than one offer. And this is where um, the general advice from recruitment agencies is to avoid getting pressured by schools into making a rushed decision. Yes. In general, schools, once they extend an offer to you, have to wait until you say no to make that same offer to somebody else. But at the same time, they also know that they should give you time. If there's a school that is pressuring you to say yes right away, we would consider that a red flag. Uh, probably. Um, not always. I think it would depend. But schools have to wait. But Really, the, the fairs favor schools over candidates, so they may not wait. They may not give you that option, in which case, yeah, like, I don't know if I would consider it a full red flag, but I would probably move on if they're pressuring you into taking a job. Maybe an orange flag? Especially if it's somewhere that maybe wasn't on your initial list, and you were thinking about, you know, you need more time to research, cost of living, what it's going to be like, all those kinds of things. But going back to that point of overwhelm that you were bringing up, it's a very strange mixture of feelings if you are in the really cool position of having multiple offers because, yay, you have multiple offers. You have options, but of course, there's always the fear of, oh my God, what if I make the wrong choice? 
Yeah, I mean, but there's always going to be the what ifs. You can't get rid of that. It's in any job, right? Yeah, that's very so true. What if I leave this job and go look for another one? Or what if I take this other job and quit where I'm at now? It's, you just never know. But on that note, if you do have more than one offer on the table, it's not a bad idea to let schools know that you are considering more than one offer at a time. At that point, some schools may ask you what your other offers are and some of them may consider the time that they give you to decide and that sort of thing or whether they have a more ideal candidate maybe someone that is a stronger teaching couple depending on areas and so on so it's a good idea to let schools know that you have more than one offer on the table if that's your situation i think it depends on whether you really want that offer or not um, and whether maybe you're trying to leverage it um, you also know under, under no obligation to tell them what schools. Oh, absolutely not. You are receiving offers from that they will ask you. It's been it's happened to us. We've been pressured for that information and for as well as you know. Can you just sign yes right now? Um, but don't feel pressured or don't give in to the pressure. Would be a better way to put that. That was the word I was trying to think um, about. Because you don't want to make a rash decision. You do want to have. A bit of time to at least think it over, take a night to sleep on it, and make the choice that's best for you or you and your family. Yeah, so if you're at this on your own, try to have someone back at home that is aware of this process so that you can call that person, FaceTime, send messages, and go over the discussion with them, especially if <clears throat> this is your first time going abroad, if this is your last <laughs> time going abroad. Um, it's not a bad idea. <coughs> to have someone on call, hey, I have an offer from this place, <coughs> what do you think? Um, yeah, just, just let someone <coughs> in your support system know what's going on and step a little bit outside <coughs> of your own mind when you're trying to make these decisions. Maybe someone that knows you really well could be a good idea to kind of go over pros and cons with them. Just be it's aware like any, of time any, zones. Any big life decision, yeah. you know, you bounce off people you, you know and love. Um, so it's good to have someone for that. Yeah. Uh, so that's at fairs. What, but what if you're not at a fair? You know, the general rule of thumb is probably around three to five days, up to a week usually, to decide. Uh, if a school is asking you for 24 hours outside of a fair when you're not, if you've interviewed online, I would say that's definitely a red flag at that point. Yeah, I would um, agree. Unless, you know, they're under mitigating circumstances, someone, something happened and they need to fill a position really quickly. Um, yeah, and in an emergency situation, if they lose a teacher suddenly or something like that, then it would be understandable that they might need a response quicker, but in the normal recruitment cycle for the following school year, no. That's not to say that you can't say yes or no within 24 hours. Yeah. Um, but you want to, again, be able to take that time and think through the offers that you've gotten. You know, when we came, before we came here, I had an offer. I think it was about a week when I finally said no to them, um, and they were disappointed, but uh, it just wasn't the best offer for us in the grand scheme of both of us being teachers. So three to five days is pretty the norm. Three to five, I would say three to five business days. Um, you know, if you interview on a Friday, I wouldn't necessarily say you need to respond to them by Monday. Give it, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday uh, in that range because you do want that time to really think through. It's a big life decision. 
It is. Um, Let's go into your ghosting note. Well, let's come back to that one first. Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the things we have in there too in our notes is it is a balancing act handling pressure from schools. And it's, it's worse at a fair because you do see people face to face and it's, they're kind of unavoidable. Yeah. Um, uh, if you interview outside of a fair, the pressure's a lot easier. We've all ignored emails before and that's pretty easy to just, you know, let pass. But that being said, if they do send you an email while you're at a fair, while you're not at a fair, uh, I would just respond with, hey, I'm, I'm still considering, I really like your school, I like the offer, but I have this offer or I have this to consider, I just really wanna make sure I make the right decision for me. Yeah, just because, ask for the most <clears throat> amount of time that the school can possibly give you. Because ultimately, like any job and any employer, their interest is in having you join their team, but their interest overall is for them. And so you need to be interested and look out for you. Um, any, you know, any employer, their, their goal is to promote their business yeah. and promote what they do. And that's fine, but you are not necessarily the be-all, end-all. You are not LeBron James being signed to the Lakers. Right? You are not going to change the world of international education as a single hire. Yeah. Well, maybe you will. I don't know. But, you know so but that is to say that... Don't don't give in to the pressure from a school that may make you feel really special because at the end of the day, when you if you do say no, they're gonna move on to the next person. Even if they did think that you were super special. So take the time that you need and ask for the time that you need to make this very big, very important decision. Yeah. Um, the other part is, and same in an in-person fair, you know, just let them know, hey, look, I'm still thinking and running through all my options. I'm going over everything that I need to think about. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Okay. Um, the other part that we have in here is verbal acceptance. And so some recruitment agencies will tell you that if you tell a school, yes, I'm taking the job, that constitutes a binding agreement. Now, legally, that obviously doesn't. You can't enforce... Uh, word of you know your word but with certain recruitment agencies you need to be careful of they may blacklist you and say you know what this person took an offer they reneged on the offer and we are no longer going to host them on our agency that's not true of all agencies that's true that being <clears throat> said though don't give your word if you don't intend to keep it in the world of international schools, people's word is valued, people's word is important. And if you become someone that develops a pattern of saying yes and then going backseas, that doesn't look great. So unless it's extenuating circumstances, don't go back on your word. It's, it's simple courtesy and being a decent person in a lot of ways if you commit to something then follow through with your commitment however of course we know and understand that there are always extenuating circumstances for which we don't think that you should be punished and i think that most schools especially in the world that we live in where there's so much unprecedented i think we're moving towards a time where schools are becoming more understanding of changing circumstances so that being said yeah you know if you do say yes and all of a sudden your contract looks very different from what was offered to you or told to you 
that would be a situation where I might say, whoa, wait a minute, you said this and this says this. Or if they don't want to put things in writing that they're asking you to do, um, you know, if you found the job through uh, a recruitment agency, speak with someone at TES or Teacher Horizons or ISS and your, your contact person there and be like, look, here's what's happening. Um, we have found that for the most part, they're fairly understanding of those situations, but you want to be optimistic. You want to be cautious, not optimistic. You want to be cautious and without, again, without making a rash decision. Um, so speak with them, get some feedback from other teachers. You know, it's one of those things where if you say yes and something is different, is your mental health going to be worth the stress of having to deal with something that's going to be horrible versus just backing out of a contract? So that being said, it's important to remember that when you get an offer from an international school, especially if you're at a fair, the initial paper that you're going to get to sign is not your full-fledged contract. It's usually just going to be a letter of intent or uh, what I would equate to a term sheet with the basics of your position, the basics of your compensation package, and the start and end date of your contract. But it's not going to have absolutely every single fine print. So when your school does send you your full-fledged contract that is going to get authenticated and all of that, read it. Read it in detail. Make sure that you know what you're signing. Yeah, make sure that you have an English copy as most countries will require them to also be in their uh, local language, which makes sense. Um, but yeah, really, you know, if you say yes and you have to back out, that's okay, depending on the circumstances. But also, if you haven't gone through a recruitment agency, it may be easier if circumstances change. If you just emailed the school, interviewed, um, you may have less to worry about as far as getting blacklisted goes. But, uh, you know, I don't actually know anyone who's been blacklisted. Not really. Um, that being said, I don't personally know anyone. I think I've read about it happening to people. Um, so be mindful that while saying yes verbally doesn't constitute a legally binding uh, agreement, it can be viewed differently depending on the school and if done so through the recruitment agency. And as we've said before, this is a really small world. International education is a really, really small world. You never know who worked with who and which <clears throat> admin moved to this school and all of that. And so people talk, admin talk, and you want to make sure that what people's perception of you is, is positive and the way that they speak about you is positive because at the end of the day, schools and teachers want Schools want the best teachers and teachers want to go to the best schools. So be a person that fits both of those um, criteria so that when people speak about you, they have the best things to say. Yeah. So now we can talk about being ghosted because it does happen. What if you've interviewed with a school, had one, two, three interviews, or they've even said they'll send you an offer and then you hear nothing. Um, you know, our recommendation would be to, if you've had two interviews with the school and you hear nothing back, four or five days, shoot them an email. Follow up. Yeah, always follow up. You're not being needy. You're not being, um, what's the word? Not dependent, but you're not being demanding. 
this is your future and you have a right to know, especially if they've given you more than one interview. Yeah. Um, it's generally common courtesy that a school should at least tell you no. Now, if you just email schools and you don't hear anything back, that's, it's not fun, but that's the norm. It's the unfortunate reality of schools that receive sometimes thousands of applications for only one position. It's also the unfortunate reality of schools just not always being courteous back. Yeah. Um, but if you've had, you know, at least an interview or two and definitely three, contact the schools, especially if you're interested <coughs> in that position and keep letting, you know, remind them. And if you don't hear back after two, maybe three emails, then you might have to assume the worst. Um, but they've said you were, if they've interviewed you, they've said, oh, we'll send you an offer. I would say in contact as much as I could, if it's a school you're interested in. Yeah, so most schools in our experience will tell you a deadline of which, if you don't hear by us by this date, assume that we're not moving forward with your application, and that's helpful. I mean, it would be nice to not have to wait however many days it is to figure out if it's a yes or a no, but sometimes that's kind of the way in which some schools may kind of deal with their shortlisted candidates if they're not moving forward, and it is at least an answer, even if it doesn't come on one specific email saying we're not moving forward with your application, just if you don't hear back by this date, assume that we're not moving forward with the application or yeah. we're just not doing it. It's not the most uh, courteous way of doing it, but it happens. Definitely not the most delicate way, but we have and seen it and I've actually seen it outside of the world of education. If we, if you don't hear back by this day, you're not shortlisted or whatever it is. And honestly, if a school offers you, you know, has three interviews and or says we'll send you a contract and you never hear from them again, you might be better off anyway. Yeah. It might not be someone you want to work for. Absolutely. So something to keep in mind uh, as you're in the middle of the interviewing process. Um, but let's say you do get an offer, you do sign it. Uh, what kind of comes next? We'll talk more about this. In, we'll talk this in more detail in our next second to last episode of this season. Um, so uh, next week. But one of the things that you do have to be mindful of is visas. You're going to, for the most part, need a visa for every country you go to. And that process looks different depending on the country and can change from literally one week to another. Yeah. So when we say visas, <coughs> what we're trying to say is you will, in some cases, need first an entry visa to get into the country as someone that is going to transition into a work visa or you will need a work visa before you arrive. So those are processes that need to happen before and it's one of the things that you're going to need a full-fledged, legal, stamped, all the frills contract to be able to process. So some of the things that you want to think about is, A, for me a red flag would be if a school didn't want to pay for my visa. Yeah. Um, now maybe, no, I think anywhere if a school said, hey, send us this money or you're going to pay this for the visa, I would be really, really skeptical. Um, a good school and a school you want to work for should cover those basic costs. Yeah. Uh, visas and airfare. I'm not, I'm not looking for any school that's not offering those. It doesn't mean it couldn't still be a good school, I suppose, uh, but it's not a school I want to work for. It's, it's a good signal of, of intention and, and preparedness to make the investment to bring you on board as an overseas hire because 
visas and the process of getting the documents ready to even apply for the visa is time consuming and it's expensive. So it's a good it's a good signal of the school's intention and the school preparedness if they are prepared to help you with those costs, because sometimes that can be hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Um, so as you're as you're accepting an offer and thinking about it, talk to your employer about online versus in-person degrees. More and more countries maybe are wavering on using online degrees as uh, a point of evidence for a teaching credential, which is interesting because of COVID, you think there'd be more openness to it. Uh, but I'm not sure what's, I think China is the one that's in, in flux right now. I can't remember if they're going more open towards online degrees or more the other way. I'd have to double check. But It's an important thing to discuss with your school what your de- where did you complete your degree is, de- is it an in-person degree or is it an online degree because depending on that you may not be able to get your credentials authenticated or the country might just have visa restrictions for online degrees in your profession yeah um think about whether you're married or unmarried meaning are you um, a teaching couple where only one has an offer but you're not married that may place undue stress on the school to try to obtain a visa as not every country allows for unmarried dependents to follow. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. And I, if that's the case, are you willing to either A, forego that contract and that school or B, get married? The uh, other, if, sorry, go, go on. No, go ahead. The other thing that is important to think about regarding married or unmarried when you're going to move abroad is that in many countries, if you are not legally married, you are not family. That means if something happens to your significant other, you have no rights whatsoever. And so it's something to consider because the reality is that things happen. So if your significant other is in the hospital, are you going to be allowed to see them since you're technically not family? If God forbid your significant other dies and their body has to be repatriated. Are you going to be allowed to make those decisions? All of those things are important to think about because in many places, unmarried family units are not really recognized and that you don't have legal rights. So if you're going to move abroad, it's something to think about. It's one of those things where it's like, you don't, you don't want to think about those things, but yeah, a lot of people have differing opinions on the value of the marriage institution and all of that. But if you're moving abroad, you also want to think about being able to be there for your family in every way possible. Yeah. So be prepared to, you know, if you're not married and you want to go as a trailing spouse or, well, a trailing partner, uh, to maybe have to deal with that. Again, that's, you know, it's going to be a country by country basis yeah so it's something to speak with your employer about and uh, re- in reality they will hopefully let you know and uh, something you discuss before you even say yes yeah it's one of the things that you know some countries have very strict rules on that um, where if you are not legally married you can't be you can't sponsor people as dependents and all of that so it's an important question to ask your employer when you accept an offer yeah so as you get your visa ready you might you're going to have to start preparing some documents. And again, this, you know, we'll, we'll just talk broadly because it's going to vary from country to country. Yes. Um, you know, and the things you will or won't need. 
So if you're married, you may need a marriage certificate. Uh, you will almost always need proof of your teaching license, no matter what country, for the most part. Um, you will need maybe birth certificates, maybe for you and your, your partner, if so, almost, well, I don't actually know, we should ask, probably for your children, if you have children. Yes. Um, passports, for sure, you're going to need copies of your passports, and passport photos maybe, depends. Um, but with those things, those are not as difficult to get. What you might need are some things to show that they are valid and authentic. You might need an apostille. For example, when we moved to Korea, we had to get an apostille of our marriage license, and I had to get an apostille of my teaching certificate. So let me put on my legal thinking hat here and just briefly explain what an apostille is. So many years ago, a number of countries got together in a convention in The Hague in the Netherlands and signed agreements saying that if you have this stamp called an apostille, that document is considered a valid version of that document in other countries that signed the convention. It's really helpful because if you get the apostille, then it's considered a legal document when you take it to another country that is also part of the convention. So it's a good thing to ask, can I get an apostille? Will an apostille be good for authenticating documents? Okay. Um, and you know, it's an interesting process because it has to be done through, if you're in the, I don't know what it's like for Brits. I don't know how that works or Aussies or Kiwis or people from South Africa or other countries. I can only speak to the U.S. Um, in the U.S., we had to send it to our state of residence or not our state of residence, but our state where of, the document was issued. Yes. So send it to the secretary of state to secretary of state to have an apostille. And for example, again, with Korea, I had to send my original teaching license. So I had to send something in, not just a certified or notarized copy. It had to be the original that I possessed, which was really frustrating because it got stamped and punched through and I had to then apply for a new original from the, oh, the Office of Superintendent of Public Construction. So that was really frustrating. Yeah, so rules on what it takes to apostille a document or, what, or to authenticate a document are going to vary in the U.S. from state to state, in other countries from country to country, in the Dominican Republic, for example, which is the other example that we can talk about. Um, you just go to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and that might be the case in other countries, and then you just get the apostille there. Yeah. Um, so it's a process and it may be helpful, you know, once you talk to your employer and HR department to have a contact back home because sometimes you may need these documents before you can return home for the summer. So you may need help uh, getting mail, sending mail. For example, when we did our apostille, the Secretary of State wouldn't mail it abroad. It had to go to a resident in the state where it was issued and then forwarded to me, which was really, really frustrating. but there was nothing we could do about it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so make sure that you do your research on the rules <clears throat> and send things the way that they're supposed to be sent. Be nice to the people at the courier agency <laughs> next to your house because you may be there a whole bunch sending documents by courier, you know. Yeah, and so with some of those things, the schools may or may not help with that. You know, if you're gathering documents on your own, they may or may not help with that. You know, they may, if they send you a physical contract to sign, should offer you money to return that contract uh, via DHL or FedEx or UPS or whatever courier service they use. 
but some of these other documents might be on you. Yes. Um, so keep that in mind. You may also need an attestation. You want to tell them what an attestation is? Okay, so an attestation is essentially a credential evaluation, meaning that the country where you're going says that the degree that you have is an equivalent of the degree that you're going to be um, of what that degree would be in country. I've had attestations done in the US for my law degree from the Dominican Republic saying that it's an equivalent of a JD, and I've had attestations of other degrees to come to Saudi Arabia, but it is a credential evaluation, essentially. So you may need that as well, um, and that's usually a fairly smooth process. Yeah, in the US, there are credential evaluation agencies. In other countries, it might be done by the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Well, and usually what will happen is, is your employer will, again, have a service that they have used or someone who runs that between um, wherever you are the and the embassy of that country. And so it's usually not a huge issue, but it's something to be prepared for. And then there are the other two checks that you might need, medical checks and background checks. Yeah, so background checks, there's two types of medical checks and one we'll talk about in another episode because that's when you get in country and you'll almost always have a medical check in country. Yes. I've never not had one. Right. Um, but you may need a background check and we recommend these anyway, you know, and most schools, you know, we've, we've gotten stuff through search mostly and we do put our medical, our background checks on there, not our medical checks. Um, so it is available and we usually have just an FBI check and then um, there are services where you can get background checks done for all the countries you have lived in. And it comes, it's a considerable fee. Um, and it depends on, you know, a school theoretically, if they require that, should offer you reimbursement for that or money up front. But if it's something you're doing on your own, then be prepared to fork out, you know, 100 to $500, depending on how many countries you have lived in. Some are easier to get. Uh, versus some are harder to get. Russia and, was harder to get. And here's the, the, the rationale behind background checks. With um, the emphasis on child protection policies in international schools, schools have become more aware of the importance of ensuring that the people that they are hiring are people with clean records, especially if they have worked as teachers in other places, which is why in some instances you are required to do a background check for every country where you've lived and when it comes to recruitment agencies it's a, i'm not sure that it's fully required but it's a good idea yeah it, yeah. it puts you it, it allows you to put your foot forward as yes child protection is important to me as an educator yes here is my clean bill of health in that particular case um, and but yeah it's it's tied to that it's tied to that increase in awareness of, of child protection policies and schools starting to establish very overt child protection child protection policies and making sure that they are that people that shouldn't be around children are not seeping through international borders and taking advantage of lack of records being kept or in other places yeah, um, you know, for the most part, uh, you can get an FBI check in most countries done through a variety of sources. Um, start by talking to the embassy or consulate if you're already abroad. 
And again, I think Search Associates does offer... They recommend a service. A service that you can That use. is listed um, when you're in the application process to yeah. join as a candidate. I imagine some of the others do as well, but I haven't researched that very thoroughly. So um, that's something to do if you're registered with TES or Teacher Horizons or Scroll. Talk to them about services they recommend for, if they don't explicitly tell you, um, services they recommend for getting background checks done if you've lived in multiple countries. So the other kind of check is a medical check, and these can be very simple or they can be very invasive. Um, but again, a school should reimburse you for the costs of those medical checks, if you have any. You know, depending on where you live and what your health insurance is like, you may not have any. And sometimes they may seem superfluous. You may be asked to get a test that your doctor takes one look at and says, why do you need this? And you just say, <laughs> I don't know, but I have to. Yep. And there's not much else you can do. Yep. You just have to get it done. Um, yeah. Every country has different rules on the kind of medical checks that they need for work visas. Some countries ask pretty straightforward things. Others ask rather puzzling things. But either way, um, you go with the flow. And again, we expect, or my personal expectation is that if it does come with a fee, the school generally will help me out with that cost. Agreed. Because they're the ones who want me to come work for them. And so they should at least offer reimbursement for some of those things. Yes. The last thing on our list today is once you sign a contract, we recommend, you know, you've already done the research. You've been on Reddit or Tails or Glassdoor or uh, Facebook groups, researching the school and the head of school and your admin, see what kind of people they're like, what the school culture is like. But now we also recommend you get an email buddy at the school. Yes. Um, now, there's a caveat with this because if you've been a teacher, you know that that email may get ignored. Um, I, you know, I've had email buddies in the past where I've been very responsive and email buddies in the past who I've emailed, heard back maybe a month later, and then maybe that was it. So. You ideally do want to speak with someone on the ground where you can be a bit more open, maybe... Ideally in your division. Yeah, if you can. If you um, can, if it's Or at possible. least under your same administration. You yeah. Know, if you're teaching elementary, it makes sense to speak with an, another elementary teacher and not a high school teacher. Yeah. So, but talk to your employer. They shouldn't have any problem connecting you with someone in the division. Uh, who would be willing to answer some basic questions. You know, you're going to get more specific information about cost of living, uh, workload, things like that than you might find on um, ISR, which might be a couple years old, or uh, Glassdoor, which may not have super accurate salary information, all those kinds of things that you should get better and more accurate information from an email buddy. In great case scenarios, your email buddy may also allow you to um, start getting familiar with the school's curriculum ahead of mm -hmm. time. In some of our um, best experiences, we've actually been invited to staff meetings or to division meetings or curriculum meetings as incoming faculty. So we've started having those conversations really early, not just arriving in August when you're trying to settle your entire life and 
maybe finding yourself in a situation where, oh boy, there's not a lot of written curriculum. Um, I'm not entirely sure what I need to do. So email buddies are helpful in that way. They can help you kind of start getting acquainted with the way that the school works. And then of course, starting to find out more daily life things, fun things like how do I buy a car or do I maybe I recommend this person to help buying a car or this restaurant for the first week that you arrive for a nice dinner or whatever it is. Yeah. So email buddies are really useful. Um, they can be. They for can sure. be. Sometimes they cannot be. So that's all we have for you guys today. Yeah. Um, next week we'll be discussing the preparing for your move, looking at Next week is especially designed for people who have never moved abroad or made a large move like this before. Um, and we'll be giving you our opinions, not necessarily our recommendations, because some people like to use the move to start fresh. Some people are minimalist. Some people want to bring uh, their sentimental things with them. So we'll be looking at what do you do with your stuff? How do you manage that? How do you speak with family? Things like that. The reason why it's important to have an idea of that prep work is not only because it's a lot of moving pieces to manage when you are getting things ready, applying for your visa, packing your things, selling things back home, talking to your family, which may or may not be supportive, supportive but you're also doing all of these things in a lot of cases while still working your regular job. And it can be really hard to keep track of all of these moving pieces. So if it's your first time making a major move like this, next week is for you. Yeah. So that's all we have for you guys today. Please like and subscribe and we'll see you in uh, a week and we'll get to rounding out this season in a couple weeks before we go on to what might stick with education we're not sure yet any questions or suggestions on what else you want to hear about in this podcast please leave us comments you can contact us on our social media or leave us a comment on youtube we are more than happy to take suggestions until next time right